Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm PJ Doran. And this week we have as our guest, Sam Lockhoff. Moto America, the home of the AMA Superbike Championship featuring 190 mile an hour superbikes is the official sponsor of Pit Pass Moto. Did you know you can get tickets at MotoAmerica.com? This is a show we want you to go see. Tickets and info available and complete 2021 schedule available at MotoAmerica.com forward slash tickets. There are a total of nine rounds coming up for this season. All 20 Ono Superbike races are going to air live on Fox Sports. If you can't get out to them, check it out there. King of the Baggers is coming back. We've added more of that. There's going to be a total of three rounds. There's so much exciting news for the 2021 season with Moto America. Four rounds are going to feature the Mini Cup by Motul, helping to build the next generation of riders, featuring kids from six years all the way up to 13 years old. It's a great class. They'll be running at Road America, The Ridge, Pittsburgh, and, of course, Barber. First event's coming up April 30th through May 2 at Atlanta. That's Road Atlanta. Look forward to being there, seeing the races. Get your tickets at MotoAmerica.com. Get out there and check them out. Follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Now, here's the latest news in the industry. What happened in the off-road and Supercross worlds, Dave? We had some uh, off-road racing first this last weekend. The General in Washington, Georgia. Coming back from an injury, Stuart Baylor goes out and dominates, wins that round, followed by Ben Kelly and Josh Toth. Then we had the Arlington Supercross, which was uh, March 13th. And I'll tell you, Cooper Webb put on a clinic. That boy pulled the whole shot and disappeared. I told everybody, look out for this guy. He is a sneaky one. Not only did he win this weekend, but he is leading the points. Second place on the night in the 450 class, Justin Barsha. Good to see him back on the podium again. Followed by, in third, Jason Anderson muscles his way into third place. Had to kind of push his way to the front, but he did it and uh, got on the box. So full credit to him. Uh, Missing from the podium this weekend, Eli Tomac, defending champion, finished eighth on the night. So after winning and dominating Daytona, he had kind of a tough outing there in Arlington. In the 250 West class, we have another new winner, Seth Hamaker, the Pro Circuit Kawasaki rider, went out and dominated, pulled the whole shot and disappeared. Absolutely a stellar performance for a rookie. Followed in second by Hunter Lawrence and third went to Cameron McAdoo. Justin Cooper finished fourth overall. So your point standings in 250 West continues to lead. Cameron McAdoo with 70, followed by Justin Cooper, and then followed by Lawrence. Now in the 450 class, as I said, Webb is dominating now with 223 points, followed by Ken Roxon with 216, so he's seven back. And your defending champ, Eli Tomac, has now fallen to 33 points back in third place. What do you got going on in uh, road racing there, uh, PJ? As we all know, Brandon Posh took the win at the line at the Daytona 200. I watched the whole thing live. An incredible race at the line, Brandon Pash puts on an absolute Daytona Clinic, drafts Sean Dillon Kelly to the line, margin of victory 0.03, a classic Daytona finish. You never know who's going to win it. Sean Dillon Kelly was in the midst of trying to make a double draft move and come back by Brandon another 50 yards, and he had him. Incredible finish. All kudos to both those guys. Rounding out the podium, of course, was friend of the show, Tyler O'Hara. Congrats to all three of those gentlemen. 
We also had the AFT series kicking it off with Volusia 1 and 2 at the Volusia Half Mile there. AFT production twins on the first race. At, we'll talk about race one. Chad Coase came out on top of Dan Bromley and Corey Texter. In the singles class, Shayna Texter over Dallas Daniels and Michael Rush. In super twins, we had Brandon Robinson, followed by the incredibly talented road racer, who's now flat tracking again, J.D. Beach and... Jared Meese, the legend. Go to round two at Volusia. Same track, different results. In AFT production twins, we had Corey Texter over Chad Coase and Dan Bromley. Same guys, they mixed up the order. In single, Shayna Texter pulled the double. She won both of those races. Michael Rush was in second in the singles class. Morgan Mishler third. And in super twins, Jared Meese fought back and won on the night over Briar Bauman and slamming Sammy Halbert. Congrats to all those racers. This week's Pit Pass trivia question is, what current production motorcycle is the highest horsepower rating and how much horsepower does it produce? More on that later on in the show. Coming up is our guest today, Sam Lockoff. Today on Pit Pass, we look forward to welcoming Moto America racer Sam Lockoff. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. I hope I didn't butcher your name too badly. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, that's actually one of the first times someone's pronounced my name right, so thank you for that. Hey, <laughs> I get lucky every once in a while. So, I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Sam, I understand you may have been injured recently. Is this a recent injury that you're coping with and uh, how's your recovery coming? Actually, this interview is at a perfect time because I'm starting to uh, get to the end of my healing process. All that uh, the social media knew is that I just had an injured ankle, but actually um, I dislocated my hip in that same injury. So it was pretty tough. You know, I've, I've broken my femur before, but I've never had a dislocated uh, injury. And that was probably worse than breaking, breaking my femur. But the rehab time was so short that I was just like able to keep it um, uh, like out of social media. Worse than breaking the femur. I have known people who have broken the femur. It's no joke. You have to be doing serious stuff to do it, and you describe it as worse than that. So, I, man, I'm sorry. It had to have been terribly painful. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, the pain was way worse than my femur. Like I said, I'm nearly done recovering, just still on crutches. Uh, trying to, Now it's just all my ankle. My hip's pretty much healed, but it's just uh, my ankle trying to get that good. So when do you get back on the bike? Are you, I mean, I'm sure 
you're targeting a time that you would like to be twisting the throttle again, right? So my uh, orthopedic guy said I can uh, actually get back on the bike at the end of uh, this week. So in maybe like uh, seven days, seven days I get back home and then I start uh, back on the on the bike. And you're riding, correct me if I'm wrong, you're now part of Team Hammer, correct? Yeah, yes, sir. And how's that looking for you? That's a power team, absolutely uh, one of the strongest in the pits. Pretty stoked about what the season looks like for you? Yeah, you know, this year, since it's uh, 600 and um, I was, I'm so used to riding the 400, it's going to be such a huge learning year. And like, luckily I'm on like a great team that has a lot of information and background in the 600 class. And obviously they have like top contenders. So just for me to be able to get data off of the bike at like every track I'm about to go to will help me speed up my my progression this year. By the end of the year, I should be battling uh, for like a very high, very high position. Yeah, Sam, given the uh, fact that you are coming off an injury, would you jump right on to the 600 or does your are you going to ease into it? Is your training involve some other bikes? I actually did injure myself on the 600. Later, if you want, I can uh, tell you like how it happened, but... Yeah, I train on my Husqvarna 450 and then my Suzuki 600. Those are pretty much the only bikes I'm riding right now. So you're doing some uh, off-road riding. Uh, you're a Florida native, correct, Sam? Yeah, I, I live in Florida, but uh, my training is all up in Georgia. So I rented an Airbnb there just to train. I've been training with PJ Jacobson. He is no joke, a fast dude, been around the racing uh, world, in fact, has PJ. That's got to be a, a big help training with somebody of his caliber. When I hear Georgia and road racing, I constantly think of the Heron Complex. Do you guys visit that kind of stuff, or is that just not in it? There's a track called the Jennings GP, and that's where we were based, because um, that track has track days pretty much like three times a week. So I was on the 600 three times a week, and then we would drive like three hours to ride uh, my supermoto. So I haven't done any off-road stuff. I'm going to start flat tracking pretty soon. Uh, I'm probably on like a smaller bike, like a 125, just because it's so much easier to get hurt. So that's your cross-training reg- regimen then, get on the supermoto bike and kind of mix it up a bit. Are there any other... Uh cross-training tools that you're using to to get prepared, like mountain biking, that kind of thing? The biggest ones for me is uh, running and uh, mountain mountain biking. I sometimes road cycle. I just, to go for like four hours is just a kind of a pain. But if you go like mountains, mountain biking, you can go for one hour and do the exact same cardio and exert the same energy as you would on a on a road bike. And you get the advantage of actually enjoying yourself going up and down things quite often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what's the biggest... The biggest change that comes with advancing to this next level of your career, Sam, I mean, what do you see as the biggest change? Obviously, the motorcycle's changed. You've mentioned that. And is the competition feel like it's the same or is it intensifying? I think the competition in every category will always like pretty much be similar. It's just because like to win a race in any class is is never going to be easy. But obviously, once I get the competition for now is going to seem so much like heavier than normal, in my opinion, because obviously I'm not as quick on the 600 as I would be on if I was like on my 400. But like I said, towards the end of the year, that's just going to that's just going to be the gap of competition, I think, is just going to start closing down while I get used to the bike. And it would seem to me a lot of the same names are following, I guess, the same route up to the 600 class. I I know I've seen some real familiar names that have made the move up. Yeah, so uh, Rocco's moving up, Dominique's moving up. That's going to be kind of a good gauge because uh, Rocco was always a little bit quicker than me in, uh, in the 400. So if he's just a little quicker than me on the 600, 
or if I'm like obviously faster or the same as him, I know like I'm in a good place right now because uh, he's he obviously did the Daytona 200, so did Dom, and they were both pretty quick. I haven't ridden the 600 against any competition so far, but uh, that's what the Texas test is for. Will that be your first time legitimately throwing a leg over? It sounds like you have already done that. So what do you think of the power difference? I mean, it is notable going from the 400 twin to the to the 600 four-cylinder. From like hitting maybe t- top speeds of 120 on the 400 to like straight up to like maybe 165, you feel the difference and just how f- quickly you get there. Also, the biggest thing on the 600 compared to the 400 is the lines. My lines change completely. More speed changes up your entry point, uh, the breaking point, your turn in, all of that, I think is what you're referring to. And it is interesting how different the same racetrack can be, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to think that your lines would change that much, right? It was crazy because on the 600, you have so much power that if you're on the side of the tie and you give it gas, you're either going to like wheel spin pretty badly or you're going to high side. But on the 400, you can get away with hitting the gas pretty hard while pretty much full lean angle. But on the 600, you have to kind of just enter the corner, square it up. And the earlier you can pick the bike up, the better. But on the 400, you want to carry momentum and kind of run the bike out pretty wide. And Sam, it seems to me you're extremely adaptable. Early on in your career, you were actually a four-wheel guy who moved over to motorcycles. And what was that transition like when you were young? Honestly, uh, from going to go-karts to a, a motorcycle, just the height, from sitting so low to the ground, maybe like half an inch off the ground to maybe may, maybe like five feet max, like your, just the position of your head is so different. It kind of threw me off. Like I was looking at the track at a different perspective. The bike, I kind of just, I don't know why or how, I kind of just adapted to the bike without kind of knowing what I was doing. But then I used that and I started to understand how and why I was so quick. And then that kind of uh, took away most of my crashes that I was having. Was it the race craft that kind of translates directly from four wheels to two? In other words, the, you know, placing yourself and setting up passes, those kind of things. Is that, is that very similar? Yeah, a lot of it is similar. But uh, with the four wheels, just because I was in go-karts and there was not a lot of straights, like slipstream, the slipstream on a, motor, on a motorcycle is so much like, so much more impactful. There, there's slipstream on the, the go-karts, but a lot of it's like corner speed. Yeah, I would say definitely racecraft uh, helped just because you had a, a little bit of experience from like, I wasn't just jumping straight into a brand new sport. It was kind of the same concept. Having some experience in go-karts, Sam, did you find, was it just the sensation of speed? Because absolutely, whenever go-karting, I find that I feel like I'm going a lot faster than I realistically am. And on the motorcycle, is it the, was it the opposite? You weren't realizing how fast you were going? Yeah, also because it's so low to the ground, so it like kind of changes your, your point of view. But on a, in a go-kart, you can carry so much more corner speed than a motorcycle, so that's also kind of something I had to learn to like, whoa, I'm only on two wheels, I can't really go this quick. On the motorcycle, yeah, you get four contact patches on the go-kart. So as we all know, the the amount of rubber on the road is what determines how fast you can take the corner. How'd your go-karting go? I mean, uh, clearly you you found in that the, the desire to compete and, and win as a racer would. Had you thought of going further in the automotive world? Honestly, with go-karting, it went like it went it went great honestly i did it maybe for eight nine months and i was racing against people that did it for maybe maybe 13 years because i was only maybe i was only 13, 15 at the time and i was pretty much the youngest 
those guys were like quick, but I was finishing maybe, I'd qualify really well, I'd qualify like third, fourth every time. I won one, one race, and, but I'd finish like six every other race. And also just everything in, in like racing is just experience. And once you have more experience, you're just, you just know more, like knowledge honestly is power. So what, I guess what I would love to know is what got you to switch it up and go to wheel racing? Was there a family connection or you just saw it and had to give it a go? Yeah, no one in my family actually has ever raced like any vehicle, whether it's four wheels, two wheels, jet skis, anything like that. But I would always ride go-karts and I'd always see, because the go-kart track was in the middle of the big track, which it normally is. And I'd always see like these cars going so quick down the straights. And I was like, wow, that's like crazy. And then one time, I never before I raced motorcycles, I never even knew people raced them. I never knew it was like a sport. And then the one time I went to go watch cars, but it was actually a motor, like it was a motorcycle day and there was a motorcycle race. I sat on a little NSF 100. From there, I was just like, dad, in like three days, because that was when the next practice is. I was like, dad, in three days, can we go? Can I try ride this? And then he has had bad injuries on a motorcycle just because he used to ride on the road. But and so he was like very before that day, he was always like, no, you're never getting on a bike. But then I don't know, something just happened, I guess. Well, racing uh, is, I'm sure, an intelligent man. Your father, parents pick up on this is the safe, organized way for someone to do this. Uh, at least that's been my experience at tracks because I know some very young kids who've raced motorcycles and I've known them early in their career, middle of their career. And I often wondered, what do parents think? They think the same thing parents at a football game or a baseball game think, right? Is really the answer, I think. My dad just despised motorcycles just in, in total. He, I also honestly don't, didn't think he knew that people raced as well because we were kind of um, just kind of clueless about motorcycles. So he like heard motorcycle and he was like, no, nah, that's, that's a no-go. You're going to like hurt yourself because that's what happened to him. Well, aren't we all glad that it worked out so much better for you and for the racing world, uh, now Team Hammer. It's always wonderful when we get to see new talent, and you're clearly on your way up, man. Is it, are you enjoying the ride? Yeah, it's been, it's, there's been a lot of ups and downs. You know, It's never going to be a gradual slope upwards, but I think the biggest down I had was going to Europe. Like Going to Europe itself was good. Racing there was very good, but just... My down was just meeting a lot of people that just wanted you for the wrong reasons. And that was the biggest eye-opener. I don't think if I had to go to college and study for 20 years, I would never have learned like, what a lot of people just want. That is one thing about motorcycle racing is it, it kind of forces you to learn and, and at an accelerated rate, I guess. I'm kind of curious, Sam. I, I notice, uh, and I always like to ask racers this question, your riding number forty four. What's the? There's always a backstory behind a riding number. What's uh, what's the story with forty four? So when I raced go karts, the number was uh, you had to ride with the number. It had to be a three digit number with the number starting as a four. And then we, my dad, he actually used to live in a an apartment complex like numbered forty four, and we just thought like three fours. So that's pretty cool. And then. When I got to bikes, it didn't have to start with anything. So we just chose a two-digit number. And we were so used to uh, having like 444, we just put 44. Well, there you go. There's always a story behind the number. For the past two years, I had to ride number 57 because number 44 was taken. And 57 is obviously my birthday, May 7th. So that's another story. Sam, 
We're so looking forward to this season, watching you race. We hope that you're going to heal up as good as you possibly can. Do you want to take a moment to thank uh, any of your sponsors or people that have helped you along the way? Now's the time on our show before we're done uh, talking with you where we want to give you that chance. I think for this year, just mainly, uh, it's going to be, it has to be M4, Team Hammer. My For like training wise, it has to be PJ Jacobson. Like he's helped me so much on on the 600 that I think I'd still be maybe three seconds a lap slow if I wasn't with him. I want to also thank just Arai RST and uh, still uh, have to try and find a boots to thank. So that's something I'm working on. Well, best of luck getting all your sponsors in a row, Sam. We look forward to this season with you. Thanks again for taking the time with us today on Pit Pass. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was an honor. We'd like to thank our guest today, Sam Lockoff, for being with us on Pit Pass Moto. And now our Pit Pass trivia question. Let me read that back to you one more time. What production motorcycle produces the most horsepower and how much horsepower does it produce? And the answer, of course, is the 2020 Kawasaki H2R 1000cc supercharged motorcycle produces, sitting down, PJ, 310 brake horsepower. That's just insane for a production motorcycle to make that kind of horsepower. Absolutely it is. It's spectacular that Kawasaki can put that in a street legal or really close to street legal. They have two versions of that bike. You're in rarefied, well-past MotoGP ranges, and it's incredible. So upcoming racing, uh, we've got two more rounds of the Arlington Supercross to hit. That's going to finish up on March 20th. We've also got our, another GNCC round. It's Camp Coker Bullet, which is in Society Hill, South Carolina, and that's at the end of the month. March 27th and 28th. Thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review us. We really, really appreciate that. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Hoverson, Chris Bishop, our producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineers Eric Coltnow and Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm PJ. And I'm Dave. And we'll see you next week. Keep the sunny side up. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. 
The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos! 